Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Chit Heads. Today's guest is Edwin Bryant. Edwin Bryant received his PhD in Indic languages and cultures from Columbia University. He taught Hinduism at Harvard University for three years and is presently the professor of Hinduism at Rutgers University, where he teaches courses on Hindu philosophy and religion. He has received numerous awards and fellowships, published six books, and authored a number of articles on Vedic history, yoga, and the Krishna tradition. In addition to his academic work for the scholarly community, Edwin's Penguin World Classics translation of the Srimad Bhagavata Purana, the traditional source for the story of Krishna's incarnation, is both for Indology specialists as well as students and those interested in Hinduism from the general reading public and the yoga community. As a personal practitioner of yoga for 35 years, a number of them spent in India studying with traditional teachers where he returns yearly, Edwin strives to combine academic scholarship and rigor with sensitivity towards traditional knowledge systems. In addition to his academic course load, Edwin currently teaches workshops on the Yoga Sutras, Bhagavad Gita, and Hindu philosophy at yoga studios and teacher training courses throughout the country. His translation of and commentary on the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali is specifically dedicated to contributing to the growing body of literature on yoga by providing insights from the major pre-modern commentaries on the text with a view to grounding the teachings in their traditional context. So with that, uh, hello, Edwin. Thank you so much for joining us. Good morning. So before we get started and, and dive deep into the incredible work that you've done on yoga philosophy and the scholarship that you've written, I'd love to hear a little bit about your personal story and what kind of led you to this deep work that you've uh, dedicated yourself to on the yoga tradition and the texts of the tradition. Uh, well, I was sort of fascinated with India from a very young age. Um, and I was one of those characters that hitchhiked to India back in the 70s, when you could still do that, mm-hmm. overland, and um, spent a number of years in uh, in India at that time, which were very formative years. And um, I lived in an ashram also for a number of years. And um, eventually, um, I became a little disillusioned with ashram life and... Um, I was looking for another way to continue my studies, deepen my studies, and um, academia presented itself as an option. So I happened to be in New York City at the time. Um, so somehow or other, I ended up um, in Columbia University, and I got a, I got my PhD in, in Sanskrit. And um, and then just doors opened, uh, and in certain ways, and I... Um, and I ended up teaching. So there I find myself now as a professor of Hinduism at Rutgers. Mm. Can you explain a little bit why you became disillusioned with ashram life? Well, I think a fairly standard experience. I mean, ashrams are ultimately institutions, and, um, and institutions can are useful in many ways, but, um, but they're also hierarchical, and, they, and, they, you know, and institutions require resources and, and manpower, and that can breed politics and greed and, and all of the human failings. So um, so those sorts of reasons, I think, are fairly common uh, with people who've had experiences in institutionalized um, kind of uh, spiritual settings. Mm-hmm. And what challenges, uh, this is actually a good way of moving into the next question, because you mentioned institution, and, and you moved from the institution of ashram life to the institution of academia. And I'm curious, because you're both, you're not just a scholar, but you're also a practitioner. And, and so I'm curious about 
what kind of challenges you've confronted juggling this, um, I don't know if it's correct to say, like a dual um, identity between being both an academic and a practitioner, especially since it seems that the culture of Western academia is, is not necessarily so um, friendly to yogic practices or spiritual practices of any sort generally. So I'm curious about kind of how that experience has has um, panned out in your own life. Yeah, well, it's a good question. You know, it was there was a lot of dissonance when I first when I came back from India. You know, after spending years in India in very traditional contexts, and of course, when you're studying in those sorts of contexts, you know, the, the texts are sacred texts. They're considered to be revelations of sorts, whether they whether they're coming from sages or rishis or Ishvara or whatever or whatever the the genealogy of the text might might present itself as being. They considered to be sort of um, sacred sources, um, and of course, academe is is not about subjective, confessional, you know, experiential relationship with the su- subject matter, but objectivity. So the text is just an artifact, like any other artifact. It's not there's nothing supernatural or or sacred about it. It's considered to be a human product, like, just like you know, cuneiform script or hieroglyphics on the pyramid wall. And they looked at, uh, it, you know, if, if, if through, the, through, that, through those sorts of lenses. Um, and academia is, is, is if, you know, if I were to generalize, tends to be much more concerned with the context, you know, because the texts are considered to be human products, then academia tends to be very concerned with, well, what was the context in which the text was? What was the ideology informing the text? What's the human context, the cultural context, the political context, the ideological context that informs the text? So they're not looking at the text as a source of spiritual, experiential um, knowledge, but as a human artifact. So Mm -hmm. that's a very different approach. And it did take me a while to adjust to that. I don't think one ever really, at least I never really adjusted fully, but what you learn to do is wear different hats in different contexts. Right, right. I like to think of think of it as dharma. You know, people have multiple dharmas. You know, we have parent dharmas, we have children dharmas, we have friend dharmas, we have sibling dharmas, and, and we adjust ourselves according to those dharmas. We're not the same person in every context yeah. um, a life demands of us. So likewise with academe. So when I'm in an academic setting, I would wear an academic hat, speak a certain, use a certain type of terminology and vocabulary, and you know, draw on sort of theoretical models that are appropriate to that context. And when I'm say lecturing in a yoga studio and reading the the text with practitioners, I wear a very different sort of hat. And literally, I literally I put on a dhoti when I go to a <laughs> workshop in, in in a yoga studio. I'll always bring my dhoti. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of a sim- symbolic kind of gesture of, of 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 making a transition from a certain way of looking at the text to a traditional way of looking at the text, which is which is the hat I, le- I wear when I when I'm with fellow practitioners in, in yoga studios. Mm. Now you say that when you when you're a scholar versus when you come into a yoga studio, you're you're wearing a different hat. But is there any way in which or any ways that you could extrapolate on that you feel like the scholarly and the devotional have complemented one another? Well, in some ways, yes, because the academic has really taught me to be rigorous and and objective and honest. And I think in the tradition, traditions in India tend to be very sectarian, sect-specific. So you tend to sort of end up in a sectarian lineage 
with a sort of a guru and a and a set of practices and a metaphysics and a theology, whether it's Kashmir Shaivism, whether it's Gaudiya Vaishnavism, whether it's Advaita Vedanta, and likewise with Buddhism and these. So you you end up tending to filter everything through that particular lens. So academe tends, of course, it trains one to do the opposite to step to try to bracket one's lenses. Of course, it's impossible to do that, but at least in principle, one makes an effort to bracket one's subjective lens and look at something objectively. And I think that's been very useful, and I, I very much appreciate that. I mean, even though I still remain connected to a traditional lineage, yeah, I'm I'm much more um, able to critique the lineage, if you will, because that's that's what you do in academia. You you critique not in a negative sense, but you're you know you're not you're not accepting something as a priori true just because it's written in Sanskrit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So um, so there are ways where I think. There is a nice, you know, where academe complements or enhances, you know, uh, one, what, you know, a relationship with the, with the tradition. But there's other ways where there are obviously complete and utter um, dissonances, you know, when we think of, you know, sacred, sacred time, notions of time or history or cosmography. Obviously, these are very different, the way that modern science construes these things, you know, human history, you know, what, you know, the, the cosmos and so forth, and the way the sacred traditions uh, uh, visualize these things are very different, and those are incompatible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I really, I really appreciate kind of what the, the spirit of what you represent being a scholar practitioner, and, and, I've, and I've tried to interview other similar uh, scholar practitioners for this podcast. And, and one of the things that I, a symptom that I notice that I hope eventually that uh, people like you will help to kind of dissolve is something that I encountered the other day on a, on a Facebook conversation where I was sharing some of the findings of a, of a particular scholar on, on topics related to the medieval tantric texts. And there was a person who responded um, quite aggressively uh, asking what the, this scholar's guru was and, and saying that he wouldn't even listen or even approach what he had looked at or even, um, uh, um, you know, tarry with what he had seen that I had offered without first knowing who his guru was um, and his guru's guru. So there was this kind of, you know, blind faith in, in a certain devotional tradition. And then on the other side, I mean, you see the same thing. You see sometimes in scholarship, the guru is completely written off as being, you know, just hocus pocus nonsense. So there's this kind of mutual denial of one another. Uh, whereas I see, you know, you really representing, um, something that bypasses that or transcends that. Yeah, I, 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 I think I agree with everything you just said. Um, you know, there are, you, you can be sort of fanatical, if you will, or, or confined to a certain lens or, you know, a, a way of looking at things. And, and the tradition in India, you know, there are lineages, there are sampradayas, there are paramparas, and they are, and you have a guru. And then, in fact, that, that's sometimes the first thing you, you, you know, in a traditional context, one of the first questions that might be asked of you is, "Who is your guru?" And then, and when you and when you respond to that, of course, the person will know exactly from your guru what your lineage is, what your presuppositions are, what your theological universe is, and so forth, what your practices are. But I think it's a bit unfortunate, and that's fine. But I think it's a bit unfortunate then completely denying the authority or jurisdiction of other ways of looking at the same. I think scholars have lots of insight. They provide very interesting information about the development of texts, about the history surrounding the production of texts. Uh, I think that can be very useful. And I think it's it's unfortunate on both sides. You see it on 
side. You see, certainly in academia, people with complete disdain. Right. Anybody that, um, in fact, there are many practitioner scholars who are sort of in the closet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So don't that are that are you know very careful about revealing their their their, their let's say their, their their personal relationship with the material because for fear of being branded or labeled as you know confessional subjective sectarian or even worse you know right wing right wing Hindu. Yeah. Yeah. Have you encountered any of that disdain personally directed at you in your own life? Well, I've I've never I've never shared my um, everybody knows yeah, uh, but I've never I've never actually come out and stated it or or sort of um, I mean I guess on my website you just read as a personal practitioner of yoga but I keep it very vague right, so I don't share that um, because I don't find it particularly useful to be sort of pigeonholed into a box. Sure, of course. So everybody knows, but it doesn't inform my scholarship, and I let my scholarship speak for itself. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I, you know, some scholars, scholars take different, practitioners take different positions. There's this thing called postmodern disclosure, where some scholars will say, look, it's, it, you know, let's, let's forget this silly facade of being objective. No one is objective. It's impossible to be objective. So let's just disclose right at the beginning of one's discourse. It's called postmodern disclosure. Postmodern mean, meaning, you know, modernity had this sort of myth of objectivity, the objective world out there that we could analyze from an objective vantage point and, and, and sort of understand and, 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 and conquer and dominate. Well, postmodernism, of course, deconstructs that and says that's all a myth. There is no such thing as objectivity, blah, 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 blah. So there's this thing called postmodern disclosure where sort of one position some academics take is let's just be up front and say, you know, laid on the table. And then, of course, we're duty-bound. Our dharma as academics is to be objective. But let's at least lay out what our, you know, recognize the myth of that and, and, and lay out what our filters are so, that, so there's out there. You know, I never found that particularly useful. I mean, I, I respect that, I admire that, and there are some some of my colleagues are out and out, you know, members of the Ramakrishna Mission or Shmir Shaivites or Gaudiya Vaishnavas, but I didn't find that particularly useful or necessary. I mean, we don't ask scholars what their sexual orientations are. We don't right. ask you know, those kinds of questions. Yeah. So why should we ask them what their... Uh, what their religious or spiritual uh, affiliations are. Yeah. However, if anybody directly and bluntly asks me, I'll respond. Right. I'm not going to not, not mm-hmm. disclose that. I mean, I have nothing to hide. Mm-hmm. But I don't go out, I don't sort of publish that, except in rather vague terms. I will say something like, I've been a practitioner of yoga, but of course that could mean anything. That could be touching your toes for 35 years. Right, exactly, yeah. Well, and, and moving toward um, a, a work that you did a number of years ago now that I can remember seeing in one of the first yoga studios I, I ever went to frequently, and, and a few years before I actually purchased it and read it, but when I did, I was really blown away, um, which is your translation of the, of the Yoga Sutras. So I'm I'm interested in in hearing about um, your work on that, and specifically, perhaps maybe noting or discussing a few aspects of your translation that you feel like are a departure from perhaps what was up until then maybe the colloquial understanding within yoga studios about certain translations of the yoga sutras, or or maybe um, differences of 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 translation compared to other in- interpretations or translations, if you want to um, note any of that? Well, the 
what I found was that what became clear to me was that we have, you know, very scholarly translations of the Yoga Sutras with the commentaries. By the way, we can't understand the sutras without a commentary. Right. Impossible to understand. We need to have. So in the tradition, anybody studying the Yoga Sutras, traditionally the last 2,000 years or 1,500 years would be reading the Patanjali along with the commentary of Vyas. So there were, um, ex, you know, literal and and very well undertaken translations of uh, of the commentaries, but those are inaccessible to anyone who doesn't have a fairly sophisticated grasp of Indian philosophy and Indian intellectual the Indian intellectual world. So there was, on the one hand, there were those, and on the other hand, there were sort of these modern translations that had taken massive liberties that were not representing the tradition that had taken yoga in, in very very different ways. Um, in directions. And so I felt there was a need for a commentary that was grounded in the tradition, that was faithful to tradition, representing the insights of the traditional commentators, especially Vyas, but rather than just a literal translation, which would then be inaccessible, but, you know, taking taking extracts from that and articulating in a way that that would be accessible to, a, to an educated non-specialist. Yes. Either practitioner or not practitioner. I mean, as you know, certainly for the practitioner community, it was definitely I had the, I had that community in mind, but also just you know intellectual citizens of the world that were interested in in the Yoga Sutras. So that was the motive for um, for the commentary, and I'm doing the same thing now for the Bhagavad Gita. Oh, excellent. And uh, yeah, and that was um, and then I, you know so yeah so that's that's um, that was my my vision. That was the spirit of the project. Great. Yeah. When is when is the Bhagavad Gita translation well, being I released? Just, I just finished a book um, called Bhakti Yoga with the same publisher. It's actually a trilogy. I had a trilogy in mind. Oh, excellent. Really, it's sort of the uh, the the Bhakti Yoga is. Is, is I guess it's the grand finale or where I see it all is culminating. Yes. And the Gita is is really a link between the Yoga Sutras and Bhakti Yoga. Yes, and so, I and I want and I want to talk about that too in a in a in a in a few moments. I have a few questions yeah. about that. But before we get into um, Bhakti and and the Bhagavad Gita, I wanted to ask you um, in in the Yoga Sutras you mention that um, you know you you rightly point out that the yoga which is often you know, understood, people talk about it, yoking, and it's often mistranslated according to your translation of uh, yoking the body and mind or yoking. um, And and you actually point out that it is rather the yoga is a process of unyoking Purusha from Prakriti. So I'm just wondering if you could maybe um, elaborate on that and, um, and discuss why this is quite different from what perhaps is being propagated as as the as yoga well there's a lot of talk now in sort of alternative spiritual circles of sort of harmonizing and you know body mind and soul and um and, and so forth and there's nothing wrong with any of that but that's just not what yoga is at least not what the yoga sutras are yeah and the project of the yoga sutras is is a, is a radical dualism it's mm-hmm. it's right in the second verse you know Yoga is chitta vritti nirodaha, and what happens, drashtu sarupe vastanam, the seer abides in its own autonomous nature. The word for liberation that Patanjali uses is kevalya, which is autonomy, separateness, disjunction. So, you know, if you look at the eight limbs of yoga, you know, pratyahara is to withdraw consciousness from the external, uh, and, and, you know, and, and so forth. So, yeah, the goal of yoga is to remove consciousness. It's not to, it's not to create a, a harmony... Not that there's anything wrong with that, and maybe 
in terms of the lifestyle of yoga, that's fine. You know, having the sort of harmony between body, you know, healthy body, healthy mind, all of that, that's all fine. But that's not the grand finale goal of yoga. The grand finale goal of yoga near Bija Samadhi is for consciousness to withdraw from all of that, uh, to involute and to really sort of discover its own, its own pure nature. So, um, so yeah, that's just that's basic one hundred one yoga philosophy. Yeah, yeah. So, so given that it's become, you know, the the seminal text, you know, rightly or not, of the yoga tradition or the contemporary Western yoga tradition, how what is how did that happen in your view? And do you think it's problematic that that it's become the main text of a modern practice that talks more about? or is more interested in yoking body to mind and harmonizing, as you say, the body and the mind, when in fact it's, it's philosophically directing one toward quite a different experience? Um, I used to think it was problematic, and I guess I was a bit of an intellectual snob and kind of shut <laughs> my nose up and thought that, you know, the sort of select few, only the select few understood the real teachings of yoga. But then I realized how foolish that was, and that was just my ego. Uh, and now I don't feel like that. I feel that um, that even though a lot of the uh, commentaries, modern commentaries or presentations of yoga are not representing the tradition, but nonetheless, the yoga sutras have become canonical for that community, you know, because of Guruji Iyengar and various other teachers and that have focused on the, on the, on the sutras. And there's a, by the way, there's a historical reason for that mm-hmm. we discuss as well. Why, do, why, does, why does this te- text, which is which no one in India ever reads at all. There's more people reading the Yoga Sutras in in the States than in India. So why is a text that practically become defunct in India when the British were in India, they couldn't find a living teacher of the Yoga Sutras anywhere. So why does a text that had, to all intents and purposes, become a, a sort of extinct tradition, mm-hmm. how does that all of a sudden become the Bible or the, can, the canonical text of the yoga community? That's a story which is very interesting. Yes. Uh, but that's a story for another day. But um, I, but now I think uh, to answer your question, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm what I find, and I do a lot of workshops with asana-based, you know, body-mind, holistic kind of um, attitudes toward yoga. I find more and more people are realizing, um, you know, it's more awareness. I mean, these gurus came 50 years ago, and so people are reading more, and there's more awareness. There's a lot more to yoga than asana, and just body-mind holism, and so. Um, I'm finding there's an increasing openness and curiosity about the sutras. And, 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 and the fact that we have the sutras, they've become fossilized now. That's what a sutra is. There are various sutra traditions in ancient India, and they were meant precisely to preserve technical information so that they would survive the ravages of time and, and place and context. So we have these sutras. And what that means is, then there's going to be people like me and who are going to go around and call us Puritans or whatever you want, who are going to say, well, this is really what it means. Mm-hmm. And if even only 5% of the yoga community show interest to that, that's still a huge body of people. Mm-hmm. And I'm finding that that number of people who are actually becoming more interested in what the, what the traditional what the tradition, uh, the traditional commentaries on the, on the sutras have to say, I'm finding that's growing mm-hmm. enormously. 
So then how does someone like, because for me personally, I actually um, am, was totally moved by your text and was re- ready to kind of write it off. So how does someone like me who is a modern practitioner who does see this kind of radical dualism embedded in the text, how, am, how is someone like myself able to still gain benefit from the text without feeling like, you know, it's, it's not an aspect of, of what I'm practicing or, it's, or it doesn't make sense to integrate with my practice. Should I be seeking other texts or should I be, um, uh, is there a way to be open to a text even while you know the original intent? Well, I like to think of it this way and I always say this. Um, I think the Yoga Sutras is what most of us are in the world and we are working in the world. So I think in terms of like yoga in 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 life, as opposed to the forest, I see the Yoga Sutras as a forest text. It's coming out of the Upanishadic tradition, Upanishads, which are forest books. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I see. I, I think of the Bhagavad, I think it's the, the Bhagavad Gita really tells us how to live in the world. Yes. Perform our duties. You know, have families if we, if we have families and so forth. So I think of it this way. I think the Yoga Sutras is what we do from five in the morning till six thirty. Our meditative practice, and mm-hmm. I think it would be a to be to to really kind of I think legitimately kind of uh, this is just me but legitimately kind of consider oneself a yogi or a you know spiritual practitioner I think one has to have some kind of a meditative practice that one does in the morning before the day starts mm. seems to me that has this, that's kind of like the minimum um, so Patanjali you know helps us there and and that meditative practice involves focusing harnessing the mind focusing the mind focusing it on our mantras or whatever our objective meditation is. So I think of the yoga, at least in my in my life, the yoga sutra informs what I do from five to let's say six thirty or seven, and the Bhagavad Gita then informs what I do nine to five, so to speak, meaning the rest of the day, um, you know, my life in the world and interacting with others and you know, how to fix the mind on, on Ishvara and how to you know try to be renounce attachment to the fruits of, of of one's work and all of those sort of basic teachings of the Gita. So I do think the yoga sutras has a place. For anyone that likes to think that they have a meditation practice, at least in the Hindu tradition, we're not talking about mindfulness in the Buddhist tradition. That's yeah. a very that's a very different type of practice. Okay, that's really interesting. I really like what you said because it, it I feel like it echoes actually a little bit what you said about wearing hats and um, and it, it almost like what I hear you saying is that there are different hats that we can wear in our practice and yeah. and you know at a certain time of the day I'm wearing the hat of the Yoga Sutras and at that part in that particular section of time in my in my life i am i am operating within the metaphysics of the sutras yeah and then and then i move on to an alternative metaphysics i kind of like this idea of being moved into different metaphysics throughout the day yes. um so that's could i just say that though i wouldn't necessarily think of it so much as metaphysics as mental cultivations the meta- right. metaphysical universe remains the same right the property purusha ishvara kind of that that that's metaphysics like the ultimate ingredients of reality remain the same but it's more a, mon- a mental cultivation yes what we do with the mind so what we do with the mind is different when we're practicing uh, patanjali and yoga mm-hmm. and what we do with the mind then is different when we're practicing the karma yoga and uh, which and bhakti yoga of the gita yes okay so now i want to ask you about uh, ishvara which you mentioned in uh, and my question about this actually comes from, I was inspired by several discussions slash arguments that I've had with people. And um, Ishvara, in my, you know, in your work, you 
you, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, it's been a while since I read it, but I believe that you make the argument that it's a theistic conception based on the history and the context. Um, but there's a lot of translations of the Yoga Sutras that I've found that are very hesitant to, to describe the Ishvara function as theistic and they and I've you know I've heard, seen words like archetypes archetypal yogi stuff like this and I'm wondering if that hesitation comes from a desire or um, an agenda to see the yoga sutras as non-theistic or to see them as you know as basically being capable of being adopted by someone who doesn't believe in God I think you've just hit it right on the on, on the head there Perfect. Anyone that knows the history of the word Ishvara um, in the third century has to accept that the term primarily means it's you know God with a big G. It means it means Vishnu and it means Krishna. These are, they, they, that's Ishvara. Right. More specific. That's actually what it means. It's not just God in some sort of vague, abstract way, but it specifically would you know Patanjali was in all likelihood you know a Vaishnava, a Shaivite, or a Krishnaite. And I think there's resistance, and not just re this resistance to to accepting the word Ishvara, you know, uh, as what it actually means, and what to speak of. Taking the next step, which is well, that concept in India at that time, I meant Vishnu, Shiva, and, and even more resistance to that. That doesn't even enter the conversation. And I think it's basically a, a sort of. Um, I think there's a tendency, there's a reaction against the Abrahamic notion of God. Yes. Many people are, are sort of going to these traditions to flee away from that Abrahamic notion, or they've had some bad experience, whatever it might have been, in their Sunday school or Catholic priests or rabbis or whatever it might be, and they all somehow been dissatisfied with, the, 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 with Western theism, so we just leave it sort of vague like that, and have turned east, uh, you know, in the hope of, of of ditching that that sort of big man in the sky notion. And therefore, when they find the term Ishvara in the Yoga Sutras, then try to sort of wriggle out of it, or, you know, wriggle their way around it or out of it, and try to sort of come up with these silly ideas of you know archetypal yogi, which has got nothing to do with Indian philosophy at all. Mm. So, um, it, so I wrote a paper on this, and I would have published it, but someone now in the University of Boulder, Colorado, just did his MA thesis, basically, you know, taking the, taking, you know, looking at this in, in, you know, in a, in a, in a much more, more uh, rigorous way than, than I did in my paper, and really sort of really establishing without any doubt that the term Ishvara in the, in the textual tradition at the time of, of Patanjali could only mean and does only mean, you know, in the Moksha Dharma, the text that are immediately before the sutras, the Upanishads, the Bhagavad Gita, so these sort of primary pan-Indian texts, the term Ishvara means um, God with a capital G. Okay. I'm encouraging him to publish, you know, instead of a, instead of publishing that in some scholarly journal, which mostly academics will read, to actually publish that as a book. So we'll have... I think a very authoritative um, source to turn to to make that argument. I think without, you know, clearly and um, incontestably. Yeah, that's wonderful. Do you, can you do you mind giving the name of that uh, academic? Yeah, you might get to interview him. His name is Jonathan Dickenstein, I think, and he is in the. You'll just do, if you do a web search, University of Boulder, Colorado. You can mention my name and um, and. Um, Jonathan Dickenstein, he's just defended his MA, and I think he's 
still there. I think he still has that. I think he has to submit it. I mean, he's defended it successfully, and he's now applying for PhD programs. So, um, yeah, interview him. And All right, he, excellent. Yeah, it'd be a good um, addition for your. Great. Yeah, I'll look him. I'll look him up. Um, so now I want to ask you. Um, I want to actually do uh, ask you about the Yoga Sutras alongside the Bhagavad Gita, which you've kind of been mentioning a little bit. And I know you said that the metaphysics doesn't change, but in my own understanding, and maybe you disagree with this, in my understanding, there is a kind of metaphysical difference between what is. Um, propagated in the Yoga Sutras and what is in the Bhagavad Gita. So uh, I guess first I want to know, do you agree with that? And then also what the difference of metaphysics is between the two texts. What do you you feel is the difference? Well, I I feel like there's a, there's a, there's a radical dualism, as you've mentioned about the Yoga Sutras. And then in the Bhagavad Gita, there's a, there's a certain kind of personified monism. Well, personified monism. The Gita, the thing about the Gita is, it's part of the Vedanta tradition. And what that means is that the Vedanta tradition is, has three sources of textual authority, or three texts in its canon, the Upanishads, which is really what it is rooted in, and then the Vedanta Sutras, which were written to clarify the Upanishads, mm-hmm. and then the Bhagavad Gita. These are the three texts. They're called the Pashtana Traya. And the, the, the characteristic of the Vedanta tradition is that... Um, the, the the Vedanta Sutras is incomprehensible, like the Yoga Sutras, and therefore commentaries were, were written on it. But the difference between the Vedanta tradition and the Yoga Sutra tradition is that in the Vedanta tradition, the commentaries radically dis- differ from each other in basic metaphysical uh, uh, issues, such as what's the relationship between Brahman and Atman, what's the relationship between Brahman and Ishvara, and is the world real or is it false? Is it monistic or is it monotheistic, to use the terms that, that you just referred to? Mm-hmm. So in Vedanta, we have major, major dif- differences of, of opinion on these basic, basic metaphysical issues. You don't have that in, in the yoga tradition. It's a clear-cut dualism. There's property in Purusha. So I would, in my opinion, and of course others would disagree with this, the Bhagavad Gita, the difference, if there is one metaphysically, because obviously you have a Purusha property model in the Bhagavad Gita. Krishna is very clear. He discusses property, and he says, you know, binna property ashtadhar, and in the, you know, in Maya property, that is my property, but basically the, the same property is there with the earth, water, fire, air, uh, mind, intelligence, and so forth. So you have, it's basically a Sankhya text. We call that Sankhya metaphysics. Right. But the Sankhya metaphysics is shared between the two texts. Mm-hmm. But what's a little, what's well, significantly different in the Gita is you have a much more robust theism. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily call it. It depends what we what we mean by personified monism. I mean, these are, we do have to define these terms. Um, it, it's monistic in the sense that Krishna claims that everything emanates from Him, both the lower nature and the higher nature, both the Purusha, the higher Brahman, and the higher property and the lower property, both the Atman and the property emanate from Him, and He's the source of everything and the cause of everything. Now, and he's also Ishvara. So several times in text, I am that Ishvara, I am Ishvara, I am that father, I am the source of everything. Now, the Ishvara element in Patanjali is a much more slender one. You know, I call it, you know, sort of theism light, L-I-T-E. Mm-hmm. So we, we don't, we know that Ishvara in Patanjali is a special kind of Purusha. He's an individual, but he's a Purusha Vishesha. We know that he's not subject to time, so he's transcendent. We know that he's a guru and he teaches the ancients, which of course Krishna. Everything that Patanjali says about Ishra, by the way, is echoed in the Gita and it's also echoed in the 
So, but we don't know from Patanjali what's the relationship between Ishvara and the, for example, liberated Atman. Mm -hmm. So certain questions he doesn't go. He tells us what his project is in the second verse, Atta Yoga Nushasanam. It's not a text about Bhakti. It's not a text about Ishvara. It's a text about yoga, and yoga is Chitta Vritti Niroda. He defines it, and then he goes on. He keeps his eye. Remember, there's only 1,200 words in the sutras, the tiny text. Mm -hmm. So there are many questions that remain unanswered in Patanjali, such as what is the relationship between Ishwar and creation, for example? What's the relationship between Ishwar and Prakriti? What's the relationship between Ishwar and the liberated Atman? And so on. Now, those questions are taken up by the Vedanta tradition. That's what they discuss, you know. Um, but the, but the problem, I don't know if it's a problem, but the characteristic of Vedanta is that the different sects, the Advaita Vedanta and Vishishta Advaita Vedanta and Dvaita Advaita and all these different uh, traditions which haven't really been, many of them haven't been transplanted to the West. We have this kind of like neo-Advaita yeah, that's very yeah. prominent in the West. But that certainly not, doesn't represent the, 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 the variety of the old lineages in India. So they'll take very different positions on what what is the relationship. So, so you know, is it a monotheistic text? Is it a monistic text? Who's Krishna? Is Krishna, um, is, you know, Krishna the supreme Godhead? Is Krishna an incarnation of Vishnu? Is Krishna a superimposition on something higher? The different Vedanta lineages are going to take very different views on that. For my reading, there's nothing incompatible at all. Between, I would say it's the same metaphysics, it's the same Ishvara Purusha Prakriti model. Uh, the difference is that in the Gita, Krishna comes for, forward very, very sort of in your face, so to speak, very sort of forcefully, and says, I am that Ishvara. I am the source of everything. Everything hangs on me like pearls on a thread. I am the Lord of everything. You know, Devi Hiyasha Maya. You know, this is my Maya. This is my property. These these Atmans are my anxious. Jiva Bhuta Sanatana. So uh, it's a much more robust. I would consider it to be a monotheistic text. Mm -hmm. So um, when one of the things uh, that I'm reminded of is in your introduction to the Bhagavata Purana, you mentioned that Krishna is Bra. Brahman, and um, and and, and Krishna and, says that in the Gita as well, by the way. Brahmanohi pratishtaham. Mm. I am the pratishta. I am the found foundation of Brahman. So then, I'm I'm just curious. Then, how are we to understand? Because in you know we've got Brahman, which is discussed as being an impersonal, creative, you know, non-moving source, and then we have Krishna, which is a very kind of active personification of Godhead. How do we how do we how do we reconcile those two? Well I just I just like to say though but this is where language we have to be very uh, conscious of the sort of philosophical implications of language because if we say person if we use the word personification embedded in that word is the idea that personhood is not natural or it, but, but it's it's a personification it's something imposed on something else ah i see and that's not what the monotheistic traditions would say the vaishnava and some shaivite traditions they wouldn't say that shiva or vishnu or krishna are personifications you know a la, a la joseph campbell they yeah. would say rather that the personal aspect of god is the supreme ultimate final causal absolute stop sign aspect of God. It's not a personification of something else, but personhood is the ultimate, highest, absolute truth. 
Um, but in terms of your logic question, the roots of the problem go back to the Upanishads. Remember, this is Vedanta. Vedanta is, is coming out of the Upanishads. Um, and, um, the, the, and, the, and, the, and the thing about the Upanishads is they say different things in different places. So you have some places where Brahman is described as impersonal terms, as, as you put it, the creative force that underlies everything, the source of the Atman, etc., etc., the foundation of everything. But you have other verses in Upanishad that speak of Brahman as a thinking, feeling, willing entity that creates in a more sort of monotheistic type of tone. Yeah. Now, since the Upanishads are considered shruti, which is, means they are a type of text that are considered divine revelation, the absolute, they are the highest authoritative sacred text of the shruti, the Vedas and the Upanishads. And, uh, so therefore, and to be a traditional Hindu, that's sort of what it means. To be a traditional Hindu means to accept the sanctity and, and, uh, and, uh, of the, uh, um, and the revelatory nature of the Vedas. So you so you're stuck with these or you have these texts and and the problem is they seem to be saying different things in different places and that's why the Vedanta Sutras were originally written. They're supposed to clarify that and make them consistent because if they're divine revelation, they they can't be inconsistent. Yeah. Nobody wants to think of divine scripture as being inconsistent. You want to think, well, it's consistent, we're just not reading it properly. So along comes Bhadarayana, writes the Vedanta Sutra to clarify everything. But the problem with the Vedanta Sutras are they're, they're, like, they're like some of the Patanjali Sutras. They're so cryptic, we don't have a clue what, what they mean. Some, there's, there's sutras that have no verb, no subject, just and this, that. <laughs> very, very cryptic, three or four words. And that's why then we have a third layer of exegesis, which are the commentaries on the Vedanta. Mm. And those commentaries on the Vedanta then are totally consistent, they're totally comprehensible, they're clear, but they introduce a whole new problem, right? We've got three layers of problem. Let's just back up. Let's keep our eye on the ball. The problem with the Upanishads is they say different things in different places. Problem with the Vedanta Sutra is they're incomprehensible. <laughs> the problem with the commentaries is that they avoid those two problems, but they disagree massively amongst themselves, mm. one, I mean, meaning one lineage from another lineage. So now... To study Vedanta, to get an answer to these kinds of questions that you're raising, well, what is the relationship between Ishvara and Brahman? Is Brahman higher than Ishvara, or is Ishvara higher than Brahman? Uh, is the personhood ultimate, or is impersonality ultimate? Those kinds of questions, then, we ha then have to turn to the commentaries. And when we turn to the commentaries, we're in the sectarian universe of the Indian lineages. And so we have a Dvaita Vedanta, which will, which will present one point of view, then we have the Iyengar, Krishnamacharya, you know, the theistic, you know, Vaishnava commentarial traditions. And they'll give a very, very different um, presentation of what are the ultimate ingredients of reality. And so then at that point, one has to make a choice. If one wants to sort of enter into a traditional lineage, one has to choose a lineage. Mm -hmm. um, to get answers to these sorts of questions. Well, would you would you say perhaps that the only way really to reconcile these apparent oppositions is through the experience arrived at in practice? That really, you know, we can talk. There will all embedded in the very process of discourse is going to be we're going to encounter dualisms that can't be transcended until we actually enter the practice themselves or try to live out these teachings in a, in a way that's going to um, 
give us a glimpse of, of something beyond these words that we're using to describe the, the ultimate? Yes, well, just two things, if I may. And one is, again, if we say transcending dualism, we're assuming that dualism is a negative thing. Yeah. And that's yeah. a very neo-Advaita kind of discourse. And I just want to point out that there are venerable and extremely sophisticated sp experiential spiritual traditions that promote some sort of dualism. Mm -hmm. Do not espouse this kind of new agey, perennialist idea that somehow everything is one. Why should it be so? Why can't there be just, why cannot there be differentiations within the ultimate truth? Why do we assume that? I mean, our assumption seems to go something like this. This world is a world of imperfection and da da da, and therefore the, the truth that lies beyond it must be beyond all of this, these world of imperfections and dualisms, and therefore somehow the, the absolute must be non dual, and everybody must be somehow tapping in when they get experientially, when meditators go into their mystical states, they must be tapping into the same kind of absolute truth. And then when they come out of that, they reconnect to their mind and senses and their languages and their cultural systems, and it comes out differently. And they articulate it differently because of the clumsiness of language and the imposition of thought. But actually, beyond that, the experience they're really tapping into is the same. Okay, That's what we might call a perennialist position or a monist position. But why? What, what if we were to challenge that? And what, what if we were to say, what if the absolute truth itself is, like the Jains would say, like the multifaceted diamond itself? Why should we just imagine this homo, homo, homogenous, one-size-fits-all, transcendent um, entity or experience? What if there are both personal and impersonal absolute experiences? And what if some lineages are going to take you and, you know, you know, to an impersonal kind of transcendent experience where one is absorbed in pure consciousness, the Satchitananda, the eternity, blissful, pure state of consciousness. But what if other traditions take you, they might say beyond that, but let's avoid the language of hierarchy because then that becomes sectarian. Yeah. But let's say, what if we, other traditions, take you to a place of interaction with the divine, playful, personal being? Mm. And what if they're all true? Instead of trying to force them into this monistic mold and sort of say, well, underneath all the clutter of language and underneath all the clutter of mythology, you know, which is a very kind of new agey, you know, Aldous Huxley, perennialist, Joseph Campbell sort of thing to do. But underneath all of that, there is this one, one, one constant experience. Why should it be so? Why can't underneath all of that, that's fair enough, let's go beyond the clutter of language and mind and conceptualization and intellectuality, but why can't the, the transcendent realm itself itself be variegated and contain eternal, real, both personal and impersonal, just to use two uh, possibilities, um, experiences? If we allow that, then we allow the traditions we can allow the truth claims of the traditions on their own terms instead of trying to force them through our, you know, kind of politically correct, new agey, oh, it's all one, let's all be happy. Right, so you're challenging what, this is putting it in a simple way, but it seems like you're challenging the kind of old adage that uh, many paths, one truth. Yes. Okay. And I'm, I'm just saying, you know, let us at least be open to the possibility that truth itself is multiple. No, and not our not truth as filtered through our conceptual apparatus, but the truth itself in its own right, in its own standing, in its own essence. That truth itself could be multi multifaceted. It could have personal and impersonal. There could be a personal God 
as well as an impersonal experience of one's own, own inner self. And one doesn't have to deny the other. They can both be true. And therefore, we need to pay attention to the path. Instead of making other paths, somehow interpreting them from the lens of our path, maybe consider that all the truth claims of all of these paths, or, paths, or at least most of them, are true in their own terms. And if we accept that they are true in their own terms, we're going to have to accept that there is a Vishnu out there, and a Krishna out there, and a goddess out there, and Spanda Shakti, and there is also the Satchitananda Atman, and all of these different things, and maybe they are all true and real. Hmm. And, uh, and, and these different paths do lead to where they claim to be leading, not where we want them to not where we want them to lead in some kind of monistic oneness, uh, just because it's convenient and, 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 and helps us sort of bring everything into harmony, but they lead where they want, where they claim to be leading. And I think if we do that, we both be respecting the traditions and, and we you know, avoid all the argumentation, not by filtering it through some kind of a monistic lens, but just, to, just allow the traditions to all be true by accepting an absolute that is variegated. Hmm. Wow, that's a, an, it's an exciting possibility because it sounds like it would put an end to a lot of unnecessary arguments. <laughs> so, well, I, yeah, I think so. And I, and I sympathize with the kind of, if I can use the term perennialist, the perennialist position is that, uh, you know, underneath all the clubs of religion, in other words, it tries to be sympathetic. It's not reductionistic. The redu in the study of religion, reductionists are those like Freud and Marx, who say there is no spiritual essence to religion. It's all man-made, and therefore, why is it man-made? And Marx would say, well, because those who want to control the modes of production, they want to you know, make up stuff to control people. And Freud would say, oh, well, it's really just your deep subconscious you yeah. know, project, whatever they might, but they're reducing it to some human, you know, uh, you know understandable thing. Mm -hmm. The perennialists are, are not doing that. They're being trying to be sympathetic to religion, they want to accept that there is something that is supernatural or, or non-reducible, that it has its own essence, that it's something, you know. But the, but then in order to do that, many perennialists, I mean, many theosophists, and there's so many different shades of perennialism, you know, New Edwaita is another one, try to say, well, there is something there, but it's beyond all this sort of theologies and the metaphysics and all of the dogmas and the stories and the hagiographies and the mythologies. And we have to dig through all of that, you know. So in a sense, they're also straightjacketing. They're also sort of imposing an agenda, if you will, on the traditions. But if we, uh, you know, allow the traditions to tell their own story and make their own truth claims and, and, and leave open the possibility that they all are tapping into something, uh, and then how, then the question is, well, how do you account for the fact that, the, that their goals are all different? They're promoting different understandings of the absolute. Well, what if we say the, that the absolute, you know, has all of these um, aspects and facets, and then and, and then many of the traditions are tapping into one of those or, or some of those. I think to to do that, to take a view like that, we are in, we are violating these traditions less mm -hmm. violation and, and imposition on a tradition. But how do we respond to the truth claims about uh, that are um, contingent to particular traditions? I'm thinking of certain interpretations of 
Christianity that breed, that are tending to be, breed, at least in this contemporary moment, forms of hate that we would yeah. perhaps not wish to see. How can we, how can we still respect the very, the variegated nature of the absolute while still responding effectively to forces that would perhaps want to smite out, you know, particular peoples or particular minorities? Sure. I think it's a really, really good question in a sense that just sort of goes against everything I just said <laughs> about, you know, and that's fair enough. I think that's fair enough. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I mean, I think what I was mostly speaking about was like the ultimate ontological yeah. goals of the, you know, the God soul, those big questions. But then coming down to, you know, human culture and interaction with others. And then, then at that point, we, yeah, I think we have to make choices. And clearly we do make choices. And we, we, we oppose certain things that are done in the name of religion. Yes, at that point, human judgment comes into it. Yeah. So it's not, it, you know, it's the, there are so many shades of gray. I'm not trying to suggest any kind of simplistic black and white model um, I, what I was saying before was more, you know, if we can be open to like the ultimate truth claims of the tradition. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, when it comes to issues like, you know, is there a God? Is Vishnu God? Is you know, Christ the Son of God? Is is there an Atman which can be infinite and omnipresent? And 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 is there an experience of of, of infinity and so forth? Those ultimate, like the final stop sign of the religions, like what's the highest ultimate truth? I think if we accept those, or leave the door open, that that more than one of those can be true simultaneously. I think that's where I was going. Mm, yes, I see what you mean. Yeah. Okay. Um, now I want to ask you um, about uh, a little bit about the Bhagavata Purana, which was one of your um, works, your translations, the tenth book, um, because I wanted to talk a little bit about Leela, and um, and in in the text in the introduction, you mention how um, entrance into the Leela is the highest goal for the bhakta in, in a, one of the traditions, at least. So I'm wondering what it means to have a practice that is entering into the lila, for those that are not familiar with this path. And um, and how does this differ from, per, you know, something, a goal like of practice, like similar to the Yoga Sutras? The goal of the Yoga Sutras is to realize one's own Atman. Drashtahu mm-hmm. vasthanam. That, this, that consciousness abides in its own nature, kevalya, autonomous. The Krishna traditions to which you're referring to accept that. And this plugs in again to the variegated nature of the absolute. Mm-hmm. The, those traditions would say the absolute, that's one aspect of the absolute. And that the, the one aspect of the absolute is the myriad atmans. There are unlimited Atmans, and each of those Atmans can have an experience of being absorbed in its own nature. And that's an experience of infinity and omnipresence. So it is a monistic experience, although the, although they would say, and Patanjali would also s- seem to say, imply that there are multiple Atmans having that. They're not actually monistic in the Advaita sense, in right, the sense right. that Advaita would have, have them be. Now, the Krishna tradition would say, that's fine, that's that's legitimate, and you know one can certainly attain that, and da da da. But they would say, but beyond the individual Atman, there is actually an Ishvara. There is a personal divine Godhead from whom the Atmans are manifestations. The Atmans are the umpses, the expansions, the the uh, the the you know the expressions of that that ultimate. So there are there is Ishvara, and that Ishvara has multiple forms. Feminine and, and and personal forms with qualities. When you have qualities, and we're talking about color, 
and form and shape, and they're not made of prakriti. They're not made of the same stuff as the things of this world, the earth, water, air, fire, and the prakritic elements of this world. But they are pure Brahman, and, and sometimes it's called Sagun Brahman, Brahman with qualities. So those forms include Shiva and Parvati, and that, it's not polytheism now, because polytheism is a very different thing. Polytheism is when you have multiple gods, and they're all more or, more or less equal. Maybe, you know, Thor is a bit tougher, or Zeus is a bit tougher, but basically they're ontological equals. So that's polytheism. This isn't that, although those gods are still there in Hinduism. We still have the lower level gods. But these are all forms which are poly but mono. They come from one source. Now, what that source is, of course, is a matter of sectarian debate. Is it personal? Is it impersonal? Amongst the personalists, those who say that that source is personal, is it Vishnu that is the source of the other uh, manifestations of Ishwar, or is it Shiva? So that becomes a, a sectarian thing. But let's just bracket that for now, because your question is about Leela. So once you have... The, a theology which allows the existence of a distinct Godhead, right? And the Leela tends to be mostly associated. Leela means different things. In Kashmir Shaivism, it means something different. But in the Krishna traditions, uh, once you your theology your theology accommodates or allows the existence of a separate Ishvara, uh, Krishna, then what's the relationship between the Atman and Ishvara? These are two distinct entities. Even Patanjali says that Ishvara is a Purusha Vishesha. Vishesha means distinct. That's what it means. Vishesha is that which gives something a distinctive quality in Indian philosophy. So once you have a distinct Ishvara and an Atman, what's their relationship? So the Krishna tradition has this absolutely delightful uh, vision of the kingdom of God, you know, what we might, a Christian might call the kingdom of God, where um, the the Atman can have a, a various kinds of relationships, and they enumerate five primary ones. The relationship of a lover and the beloved, like the gopis in the Vrindavan stories, the cowherd maidens. So you can ha have God as your lover. You can actually have a romantic, erotic, you know, relationship with God. If you're a very own form of Krishna, Krishna, it's not like there's one Krishna. Krishna can manifest unlimited Krishna forms one for each of his, of his devotees, the bhaktas. Or you can have a relationship as being, in the Christian tradition, we think of God as father, but in the, uh, in the Christian tradition, but in the Krishna tradition, it's more God as son. So you can have God as your child. Uh, in other words, if that appeals to you, the idea of caring for God and, uh, and so forth. So these are leelas. These relationships are called leelas. Hmm. And, they're, they're, and then you go, or you can have God as friend, where you're equals, and the defining feature of the friendship. And these are called bhavs. You may have heard the word bhav. Bhav is a, the state of mind that accompanies that relationship. So the bhav of the third relationship, your know, friendship, is you actually see God as your equal. Hmm. Unaware of the majesty of God, that becomes become covered by this type of maya, but a good kind of maya, called yoga maya. Hmm. So now the Krishna theologies then say, then that's all going on in divine, in, in the kingdom of God in Brahman. But in order to reveal this, Krishna, when he descends into the world in his incarnation, you know, he comes and he sort of speaks the Gita and he goes around and he kills various demons like so many avatars do. But specific to the Krishna incarnation, and this is what makes, makes the 10th book of the Bhagavatam by far the most popular um, Bhakti text ever, along with the Ramayana, the story of Krishna and the Ramayana, the two most popular around the Indian subcontinent. 
But what we find in the first half of that book is before Krishna, when he's still young, he hasn't grown up and goes out and, you know, fights the Mahabharata war and he sort of stages the war and, you know, zillions die and, you know, kills all the demons, right? Uh, but before all of that, he's just a young child. And that's where the term Leela comes. And, and he engages in Leela meaning playfulness, like he'll steal butter, and that way he gives joy to his mother, his, you know, the, those who have that parental bhav. A certain type of bhav means a mindset. Now, I don't know if, obviously, so much more can be said about that, and we, and we have uh, limitations of time. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that was wonderful. And I, and so I'm, I guess one question that arose for me that I'm, I'm curious if this is sort of a, the right direction to take it, is, is Leela an invitation to see the sacred in all the relationships in your life? Is that a, is that a, is that a misinterpretation of that, or is, the, is that kind of somewhat the spirit of it? Well, that would be the spirit more of Kashmiri Shaivism, where they okay. use the term Leela a little bit differently, and then, of course, Shiva is, the whole creation is, is a leela, and, and they would maybe sort of agree with, would, they would maybe sort of orient themselves to that, to, to that, that, that interpretation. Mm-hmm. But in the Krishna tradition, leela is something very specific to Krishna. Okay. It is your relationship with Krishna, and you are, the bhakta is aspiring, is, is meditating on Krishna all the time. That's what it makes it bhakti. Okay. In jnana, you're meditating on the atman all the time. That's what it makes. So in other words, not, in other words, not everything in my life is Krishna. No. Okay. Well, it, it is on one sort of level, in the sense that, that you, yes, you, everything is Krishna because Prakriti is Krishna. You know, like the sunlight is the sun. So the sunlight pervades everything, even though the sun is in the sky. So God pervades everything, even though God is also transcendent. So God is imminent in everything. Sure. But when Krishna Bhaktas use the term Leela, they're, they, they're using it very specifically to what they aspire for, which is an eternal, specific kind of relationship with God for all eternity, post-mortem. I see. If, if they can, you know, if, they, if they're able to arrive at that in this life, if their practice, you know, qualifies them in this life, if, if their mind is completely and utterly absorbed in devotion 100%, if they manage that in this life, if not, you know, it may take two or three or ten lives. But the ultimate goal is for the mind to be so utterly and utterly absorbed in thoughts of God. And once it starts to become completely absorbed in, in thoughts of God, it starts to orient, the mind starts to orient itself towards God in a particular manifestation. So some think of Krishna as their lover, and they love to read the stories of Krishna with the gopis. That's their favorite part of the 10th book, and they read it again and again and again and again, just like a mother might look at a baby photo again and again and again. Mm. And some think of Krishna as a child, and they like to read those other sections of the same book, where, but where there's more focus on Krishna before he went with the gopis, when he was younger and toddling about and tripping up and falling over and stealing butter and being mischievous and getting in trouble and pulling the tails of the calves and, and delighting the, all of the residents. So they, that's their meditation. And some like to think of Krishna, you know, my own sort of particular bhav, if you will, it, it tends to be more, you know, thinking of Krishna as a young friend, more sort of playful and wrestling and going out in the, in the forest. So, so, the, so the Krishna bhaktas will think of that as Leela. So Leela technically is a particular episode. Mm. So it's like a, a particular scene in a play. So for example, when Krishna steals butter and feeds it to that monkey, that's a Leela. And it's got, it has 
the name, you know, Makan Chor Leela, the stealing of the butter, Leela. And then in another episode, Krishna, you know, bewilders the great Brahma. And that's a different sort of little scene, and that's called Brahma Vimohana Leela. So Leela, it would be used for a particular, typically in the, in the Krishna traditions, unlike Kashmir Shaivism, the term in the Krishna traditions is a particular episode, and where do these episodes come from? How do we know about them? We know about them from the 10th book of the Bhagavata Purana, especially the first 30 chapters, the Braj Leela. Mm, mm. And each of those chapters, more or less, is a Leela. Actually, you can think of it that way as well, more or less. So sometimes there's two, a couple of Leelas in a chapter, but, but a lot of the chapters are sort of divided into a particular thing that Krishna did, a particular episode, a particular event that happened, and each of those is a Leela. And the devote and the Bhakta sees those as kind of like window into the spiritual world, kind of like a little glimpse into what 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 are the eternal relationships with Ishvara in the post-mortem liberated state. Ah. And 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 so the, the the Bhakta doesn't want to be absorbed in his own Atman, doesn't want to be just infinite omnipresence, con- pure consciousness. He's not interested in that. Except he doesn't deny reject it or deny it. it's it's reality, but he's not interested in that but wants to have an eternal relationship with Krishna. And so Leela then, so then the, the Bhakta wants to engage in eternal Leelas. I see. With, with, with whatever beloved form, whatever form of Krishna has, is attractive to the Bhakta. It resonates. Okay. Ah, that's interesting. Thank you so much for, for unwrapping that or unpacking that. So we're approaching the end of our time. I have one more question that sort of came to me, and I really want to ask you because it's, a, it's one of those provocative questions that I personally just feel like I, I generally don't get a very satisfactory answer to. So I'm hoping that you can maybe clear it up. Um, I'm, I'm wondering about the Bhagavad Gita, and I'm sure you hear this all the time, and like any teacher of the Bhagavad Gita, how does one grapple with who is perhaps not inclined towards a militaristic understanding or who wants to be, you know, who is perhaps a pacifist in their inclinations. How does someone grapple with the the seeming injunction to enter war as one's dharma um, or to kill one's brethren, as somebody who I recently spoke to um, put it? How does somebody grapple with that? Because that seems to be a stopping point for a lot of people. Like they just cannot get past it. Well, I think one thing we probably might not want to do, and that's try to make the text say what it's not saying. Right. And that, I think, maybe people don't don't orient themselves around that text or disapprove of the text. That's fine. But at least have an honest relationship with the text mm-hmm. and not make the text say something else. And there is this sort of this idea, which comes from the theosophists, that, well, it's not really a battlefield. It's an allegory, and you know the fight is really between you know the five Pandavas or the five senses, and Krishna is intelligence, and Arjuna is blah blah blah. That is a modern Western construct that comes right. up with theosophists, and you know, and Gandhi was exposed to that. Uh, he, he first read his first Gita, I think, in in South Africa, an English version of it, and I know he was influenced by theosophy, and because of course nonviolence was so important to him, then he he adopted that metaphoric interpretation. And then that's fine. I'm not sort of judging that. But what I am saying is it's a modern Western interpretation. It's got nothing with how the text has been interpreted for the 2,000 years prior to that. Mm. It is the Mahabharata. It is a war. No one ever suggested it wasn't uh, prior, prior to, as I say, modernity. 
Um, and but the, but the way it's understood is this: that the Gita is whether in the form of karma yoga or in the form of bhakti yoga, it's unlike Patanjali, which is not interested. In, Patanjali is not interested in dharma at all. No mention of dharma. No mention. Very little mention of action in the world. There's a couple of verses, you know, Maitri Karuna, which of course everybody jumps all over. But really, Patanjali is radical, you know, renunciation. It's it's, it's as radical removal from the world as is possible because you're even st- stopping ceasing thought itself how more what would Descartes say about that that's as radical as you can go right. but unlike that the Gita and, and in fact you know the Gita says there's two types of yoga there's the Patanjalian type he doesn't call it that but he, he you know uh, you know there's the you know and and there's this action in the world type and he says and he got lost and now I'm you know in the beginning of chapter four and I've and I'm coming to reestablish the second type he doesn't reject the first type but he says, for you, Arjuna, that forest yoga is not is not appropriate. Um, so that action in the world type presupposes um, that there are castes mm-hmm. or divisions of labor in the, to, to, for functioning society. You need to have p- people acting according to their dispositions, their guna, their karma, and therefore you will find you have intellectuals. You'll have a caste or a community or, you know, of people that teach and perform rituals. You have an administrative kshatriya warrior caste that protect the citizens and do play the roles of, you know, the police and the army and the administrators. And you have a merchant caste and then you have those who work for others, the sudras, um, the labor force. Now, Arjun is a kshatri, he's a warrior. In fact, a lot of these texts are actually delivered to warriors. The Puranas are really kind of the whole Puranic genre and the Mahabharata and the Ramayana. They're really texts, really the interactions between Brahmins and warriors, but they're very warrior-centered. So in so then there are those who are called upon to, admit, to perform managerial uh, and martial functions in society, right? There has to be, I think, most people even... Even those who promote nonviolence would have to. I would think there's some notion that it has to be law and order has to somehow be preserved, and there has to be a community of people that, in the ideal world, and forget about the abuse, but in the ideal world, you know, people have to be defended from aggression. Mm-hmm. There are, I think, most societies, most civilizations known to man, including the Indian one, certainly, had a community of warrior specialists. Now, in the ideal world, of course. They, act, they are only allowed to engage in, in violence under certain contexts, just like we have our Geneva con- conventions and we have our modern codes and laws uh, as to when violence or warfare is legitimate and necessary. So ancient India had that too. So, so therefore, in, under, from, the, from the perspective of those conditions, it was a righteous war, the Mahabharata, although we might not think so by our modern standards, it was a righteous war, and of course it's taking place not you know not in cities, not no citizens are getting killed, no children and women are getting killed. These are warriors, professional warriors fighting against other warriors. So in that context, then that's the battlefield, and and Krishna, I suppose, could have delivered his teachings to a merchant or to an artisan or to a Brahmin. Most of the teachings of Brahmins, the Upanishads of Brahmins, that discussions amongst Brahmins. But this little this particular text I think Krishna is kind of addressing to the whole world, not just to the Brahmana caste. You know, Patanjalian is, you know, is radical ascetic and Upanishads of Brahmin. So but this is a text for everyone in the world and the teachings are 
how do you, you know, do your duty, but don't be attached to the fruits. And number one, that's karma yoga. Number two, do your duty, do it as an offering to me, that's bhakti. But the point is, since he's delivering it to Arjuna, Arjuna's duty is to fight. It just happens. And so, um, so that's how the Gita pitches itself. It, so the principle of nonviolence was really a projection onto the Bhagavad Gita in an in an allegorical way that's not true to the uh, the, ori- the original intention behind the text. Which I, I uh, correct me if I heard wrong, but but which is embedded in a caste cultural understanding. Yes. In other words, when we talk about authorian, author, authorial intention, that's obviously problematic because we can never, you know, recapture the mind of the author. Right. Right. What of we can say is that the tradition that comes from the Bhagavad Gita, all the commentaries over the centuries, you know, all the tons and tons of commentaries, many more than the Yoga Sutras, yes, they've all, they've all taken it as a real battlefield, not metaphoric, not allegoric. That's a projection coming from the theosophists. That's Madame Blavatsky. She was a Russian, and she started a theosophical society. And I think they were the first to really, not just on the Gita, but to all, on all religions. They considered all of the surface-level narrative to be mythological. I see. Remember the perennialists I was talking about before? You've got to get beyond that to get to the sort of core. So she would be in, in that sort of category. So yes, it is a uh, text that is promoting caste, uh, in, in the sense of doing one's duty in the world. Yeah. And now the big debate is, should the teachings of the Gita be understood? This is a separate issue. Should that caste be birthright, or should it be according to your guna and karma, your qualifications? That's an ongoing debate, mm-hmm. which we don't have time to discuss now. So caste doesn't necessarily mean birthright, that you're born in a caste and, you know, and you're stuck in that caste for better or worse. That's, that, there's a debate as to whether the older texts are promoting that, including yeah. the Gita. So, so it's safe... On some level, yes. Okay, so it's safe to say then that... Um, perhaps a, a liberal practitioner who wants to find support for a kind of non-violent anti-war pacifist sentiment is not going to be able to find that if they're looking into the original, um, what the text is actually saying of the Bhagavad Gita. Yeah, the text is going to be saying that sometimes there's an appropriate use for violence. Yeah, right. Which is, is that, is how does one... Is what you're saying when you mention the Yoga Sutras, which of course includes the principle of ahimsa in it, is that because that that particular caste of renunciates, this is an appropriate practice and therefore not necessarily an appropriate practice for a particular moment when one needs to act? Yes. In other words, there's different different contexts. If you want to do Patanjali in yoga, then you kind of... I would think the people that were following Patanjali would would have renounced the entire social caste system, whether they were brought whatever they were. Right. They would they were giving themselves to full time meditation. They would they they would they'd stepped out of the social order, mm. which is of course what the Gita Arjuna is so confused. He he thinks that's what yoga means. He keeps saying, "You're confusing me. Do you want me? Am I should I be pursuing the Atman and giving up action, or should I be acting?" And he asked the same question twice in the beginning of chapter three and beginning of chapter five. You're confusing me. Should I be doing Patanjalian type of yoga in the forest and not acting? Or should I, maybe you keep telling me to act, act. So the Gita is a text for a different context. It's a text for people who have not renounced the world, who are not 
radically going all out for Tanjali and Chitabriti Narodaha, you know, the whole, you know, just sort of devoted to that, but are still interested in living in the world. If you're living in the world, you have to have a social order. If you have a social order, then then you have to have some kind of a system for dealing with aggression and um, and both within the order and from outside of the order. You have to, I think most civilizations known to human history would say there has to be some way of dealing with violence when it erupts. Mm. You just sit around and chant Om and hope it goes away, or you know, do you have a caste of people that respond to, uh, to situations and they may have to use violence to do so, or they may have to use force? So most societies have you know, a police force for internal... Uh, you, you know, regulation and, and an army to deal with external. And so ancient India was no was no different. So it had its warrior caste. It just so happens that the Gita was spoken to Arjuna, who was a warrior. And really the teachings is do your duty and don't be attached to the results. But it just so happens that Arjuna's duty happened to be that of a warrior. And the setting of the text happened to be in the middle of a battlefield. Right. So, yeah. Interesting. So, so the difference then, one of the differences is that uh, the yoga of the Bhagavad Gita is uh, the, to practice yoga in, in householder life, in a non-reunciant life, it is sometimes necessary to use force, to use violence, and that is still pra- practicing the yoga. Yeah. Mm. Yes. In other words, if you're, if you're sitting in a, in a studio chanting on, and in fact, the commentaries give an example a bit like this. But let me just give you a modern example. If you're sitting there as a pacifist, anti-war, you're a spiritualist, and you arrange a nice OM chanting session, and then someone comes into the studio with a gun, and you have the opportunity to disarm that person or possibly even shoot that person, but or at least you know, it, it sort of exert some aggression against the person to stop that person, and you don't in the name of, oh, Ahimsa, and that person makes 50 people. So what is the larger act of Ahimsa then in that context? Yeah, yeah. I think most people would, would if when, when, we, when we frame things that way, would probably agree that there are contexts where there is a legitimate use of force, mm-hmm. even if you're a pacifist, non-war, so you're a spiritualist. So the Gita certainly had those promoting the Brahmins were all non-violence. They, you know, the Brahmins were never allowed to engage in, you know, they were the vegetarians and all of that. But there was a caste, and they were even allowed to eat meat. Mm-hmm. And they were the warrior caste. And they, of course, they had to be controlled by Dharma. There were codes. They had their Geneva Conventions, and they, but they were called the Dharma Shastras and the Dharma Sutras. And while we might not agree with with them, and you know, with the, you know the specifics of them, they had their very specific codes. And in the beginning of the war, you know, the Dharma was there was a discussion about you know elephants fight with elephants. Not fair to have an elephant warrior fight with a foot soldier. Of course, it all breaks down immediately. The war starts. I'm not saying they followed those rules, but at least ideally, just like Geneva Convention breaks down, but that was their ideal. Mm-hmm. So Arjuna just so happened to be um, a warrior, and therefore his duty was to fight that war. Mm-hmm. 
and that you know. Yes. Wow. Thank you. That was such an uh, an interesting and and helpful explanation. I think uh, thinking about ahimsa in that way. All right. Well, I think we've about wrapped up our time together. I could talk to you for hours. This has been so fascinating. Thank you so much for offering your time to uh, speak with me. Um, I have just one last question, which is just if you wanted to maybe share a little bit about um, any goings on, if you have any workshops coming up or any um, any programs that you'd like the listeners to be aware of that, uh, and ways that they might find out more about your own work. Uh, yeah, I, I, I do workshops all over the place, but um, I don't really advertise them. Um, so no, I mean, I have, <laughs> so yeah. nobody can really find out really, but you no, you do have one website. Email which... Yeah, I can email them. Okay. I have a website, but I, I never maintain it. So it's like five years old. Oh, I mean, you, you haven't updated it in five years? Updated it in five years. So, oh, okay. Or maybe three years. Well, if somebody wants, if somebody wants to get a hold of you and find out about, um, workshops in their area, is there a place that they can go? Is there an e- email you want to offer or should they go to your website? Just go on, uh, just get, yeah, Ed Bryant. Um, I have a website, edbryant.org, even Ed, though it's not updated. Edbryant.org. Okay. And then at the, the listeners can find, um, ways to contact you there. Great. Yes. And, 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 you know, people are welcome to sit in on our classes at Rutgers if they have a passing through. Excellent. I hope to do that someday, actually. Okay. All right. Thank All right. You so thank you so much, Edwin. It's been such a pleasure. I uh, hope you have a wonderful rest of your day and hope to thank speak with you. you soon. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, everybody, that was our interview with Professor Edwin Bryant. I hope you enjoyed it. If you are interested in emailing Edwin about any upcoming workshops in your area, Go to edwinbryant.org to find his contact information. Again, that's edwinbryant.org. I believe he said Ed Bryant there at the end, so it's actually his full name, edwinbryant.org. And again, if you're interested in learning more from Edwin on the Yoga Sutras and the Bhagavad Gita, be sure not to miss our conference in April. And you can receive more details about the conference by texting EMBODY to 44222 and by going to our website at embodiedphilosophy.com. Until next time, friends. Bye-bye.